welcome to Asians Represent. I'm Daniel Kwan, and this is a bonus episode of the podcast. This is a convention episode of Asians Represent. Uh, I was just at Metatopia. It was actually my first Metatopia. I had a chance to interview James Mendez Hodes. Now, James is uh, a Filipino-American tabletop RPG writer, developer, editor, and also a, a sensitivity reader. Uh, James is the perfect guest for Asians Represent. And we had the perfect opportunity at Metatopia to kind of sit down and talk about his newest project, which is on Kickstarter right now, and it's called Thousand Arrows. Now, Thousand Arrows is a Powered by the Apocalypse tabletop role-playing game of samurai drama and action set in the 16th century during the Sengoku Jidai. That's the uh, Japan's Warring States period. We talked about martial arts. We talked about life. We talked about Japan. We talked about history. And we answered uh, an, an important question that's kind of circled the Thousand Arrows project, and it's, do you need to be Japanese to write about Japan? This Metatopia was a really big deal for me. It was my first Metatopia, and I only have like maybe a couple of regrets. The first one was actually driving down. Next time, I'm just going to fly. My body is destroyed. I cannot handle long-distance drives. That's a weakness of mine, and, and I had to find out you know, at this convention. But I had a fantastic time. You know, I, got to, you know, I got to see all of the one-shot crew meet many of them in, in person for the first time. It was, it was amazing. It was amazing. I got to playtest a lot of games. Uh, my friend Eric Paquette uh, was playtesting a game about pigeon racing. It's a, it's a deck building game. We had actually talked about it when we were rooming together in Gen Con. And it was really awesome to see that he had like followed through and, and started designing this game. Uh, I played a really awesome mech game called Mech vs. Mech. I think it's mechversusmech.com. And uh, I played that game for like three hours. And my business partner, Daniel Grow, played it for six hours straight. And it's just like Pacific Rim meets Mobile Suit Gundam meets Battletech in, in kind of this like really crunchy uh, D20 format. It was, oh, it was awesome. And uh, the, the dudes uh, behind it, Jared, Jim, and Mick, were, were really, really nice to chat with. Uh, I also got to uh, do something that was really outside of my comfort zone, and it was I actually tried a LARP. Uh, yeah, um, I believe it was called uh, A Hope of Redemption, and it was by my friend Wen Reichel, and it was a very different experience for me. I had, I had never felt this vulnerable before. I'm so used to you know, sitting at a table and having, you know, dice or candles or paper or cue cards or, or some sort of gaming aid between myself and the other participants of the game. And a LARP, at least this one, didn't have that. And we were just straight up acting. And it was, it put me in a really vulnerable state and, and one that I'm really grateful for. I was a little trepidatious at first. We, we kind of played this, uh, uh, it's kind of about redemption between two parties that have kind of split off, inspired you know, by uh, that Kylo Ren hand touch scene in The Last Jedi, and whether or not you know forgiveness can be handed out. And so we played this uh, punk band that had split up when one person had kind of gone, you know, with the quote unquote had kind of sold out. Um, 
and I played this, my, so I wasn't sure what to do. And um, so I played a character who was a classically trained pianist who was just like, my idea was that like, I didn't want to be bound by the technicality of the conservatory and, and sheet music. So I wanted to join this punk band. And so I joined as their like guitarist and I ended up working my character out as uh, as like a tertiary villain in the, in the LARP. And it was a lot of fun. And I was both like vulnerable, emotionally drained and extremely excited about what I had just done. And now I kind of want to write a LARP or at least do a lot more of them. Um, so that was a big highlight for me. And I, I just, <laughs> I was just so excited to have been able to try something new. And of course, playtest my own game, Ross Rifles. Mark D.S. Truman from Magpie Games gave me some incredible feedback on how to improve it. And I am just so excited to get writing. Well, I've already done a lot of writing. <laughs> Um, but yeah, Medi- Metatopia was incredible. Now we're doing something new. Now that Agatha and I have kind of gotten the podcast going, we have kind of a regular schedule. Uh, the schedule is the first of every month. Um, we're going to be releasing a lot of bonus content. So this month, everybody gets access to this bonus episode with James Mendez Hodes. However, if you are a patron of the One Shot Network, that's at patreon.com forward slash one shot podcast uh you'll also have bonus access to a second episode that's right i recorded two bonus episodes with Miriam ahmed and iris shia um they were um the igdn diversity sponsorship winners well one of many uh so we talked about their alpha tests and it was they were they were really great conversations so if you are a patron of the one shot podcast uh, so head to patreon.com forward slash one shot podcast. Um, you'll have access to those. If not, you're going to have to wait until next month. Now, enough of that. Let, let's get to this conversation I had with James Mendez Hodes about Thousand Arrows. This is like first con episode of Asians Represent. And it's not even an episode that I think it's an episode that should have happened like two months ago. It should have happened at Gen Con. It should have happened at Gen Con when we met in person for the first <laughs> yes. time at that bar. Yeah, yeah. It should have happened at Gen Con had I known that Thousand Arrows was going to be on Kickstarter oh. and had I envisioned that people would take offense to you doing something <laughs> that you're totally qualified to do. And I think that's the, the most diplomatic way to say it. Yes, yes. So like, okay, so you have... Thousand Arrows out on Kickstarter right now. Yes. And how long is it on Kickstarter until? It's going to be on. We started last Monday, and it will be on Kickstarter for a month after last Monday. So three more weeks or so. Three more weeks because this this episode will will have come out just shortly after I've returned from Metatopia. Yes. So it will still be on Kickstarter, and it's already funded. No, it is it's, not it's already, already funded. funded? It well, is, it should be. <laughs> yes, I think so too. <laughs> I, I strongly agree. It is about fifty percent funded. We have. A little over seven thousand dollars out of the fourteen thousand we're going for, at the at the time of recording. At the time of recording, yeah. Uh, I haven't checked the Kickstarter page. It's probably a little higher than that. I mean, we'll I mean, see. You, you don't need that stress right now. I, I really don't need that stress right now. You, you don't need that stress. So, like, you've got this amazing Japanese RPG yes. called Thousand Arrows, and it has beautiful art. Yes, and I think what struck me most about it is that you went with an art style 
that didn't immediately scream stereotype, that didn't immediately scream like we're trying to emulate traditional like woodcut art. You went with something modern but faithful to history. Yes. And that was really, really, that was really, really important to me. We may have some art from other artists in, uh, within the book itself, which might be a little bit more like woodcut art, but for the cover, it was important to me to choose an artist who, A, had a Japanese name, and B, was going to create art that showed a different side of the game, something that would create a visual counterpoint to the tone that we're striking in the game in order to show the game's range. So, so for the audience who, who, who don't know what Thousand Arrows is. Oh, yes. So a uh, uh, quick introduction to Thousand Arrows. And yourself. Oh, thank you. <laughs> yes, I should probably and do yourself. that. And yourself. I'm, I'm going to do like a, like a pre-roll and we're going to talk right. about you and I'm going to like gush about how awesome you are. Excellent. But like... All right, I'll introduce myself. Hi, I'm James Mendez-Hodes. Most people call me Mendez. Um, I am a game writer, designer, editor, and sensitivity reader. And I've been working in the games industry since, I think, 2014. Um, And full-time since maybe 2016. You live in the dream. Sort of. You live in the dream. (laughs) I'm living living a dream. Um, And Thousand Arrows is... a tabletop role-playing game that I've been working on with Brendan Taylor since 2015, I think. And it is A Hack of Apocalypse World by Vincent Meg Baker. And it is about the Japanese Warring States period, which was a long, long, long civil war that took place in Japan between 1467 and 1603 CE. Is that what some might call the Sengoku Jidai? Yes, the Sengoku (laughs) Jidai. Um, So... It focuses on people uh, in positions of power in the Sengoku Jidai, so Buddhist abbots, samurai generals, uh, uh, farmers who lead uh, peasant rebellions, that kind of thing, spy masters. So every character is not just a samurai who's cool and has weapons. They're a samurai who commands usually a hundred other samurai who are also cool and have weapons. So the choices that you're making are determining the, the... determining the fate of entire states and ultimately will determine how the warring states period wraps up and who ends up unifying Japan, if anybody. Yeah, so so this is like a, a, a powered by apocalypse Japanese historical political intrigue game. Yes. It is heavily influenced by a number of different sources. Uh, the films of Kurosawa Akira are, of course. of course, a major, major influence both on the themes and tone of the game uh, and on the content. Uh, and Japanese historical narratives, such as the Tale of the Heika, are also a big, big influence on this game. Right, that's awesome. And I think like when, when you see Warring States, a lot of people immediately will think, like, oh, China. Right. Because China had its Warring States period. Right, right. Korea had its Warring States period. Yes. But Japan also did. Yes. And a lot of the things that we see in, like, Japanese pop culture about, like, feudal Japan come from that Warring States period. We think of, like, the Muramasa Demon Blades. Yes. That comes from, like, the late Sengoku. I love that game. I mean, <laughs> and, and, like, the, historically, that, that Blade Master, mm-hmm. and then the fact that, like, the Tokugawa Shogunate was like, no, you can't have these blades anymore. We've right. taken over. Your blades have killed members of my family, and I, I got cut by you. I got a cut once, and I, I got a really once, bad about it. It really the, hurt my feelings. And these blades really want to kill me, so <laughs> yes. I'm going to melt them all down. <laughs> and anybody who owns these blades, I'll kill you. <laughs> yeah. And, like, uh, this is this is a cool period. This, it, is, this is a period where, like, you know, there's war, there's religion, and everybody's trying to, like, 
vie for power. There's tons of betrayal. Yes, yes. One of one of our taglines for the game is gunpowder and betrayal. Um, because, yeah, because the guns came into Japan in like the 16th century. Yes, in the 16th century, starting in I think the 1540s, a Japanese samurai got access to more advanced matchlock firearms than they were used to getting from China. And those came from Portuguese sources coming probably through India. And as soon as the first musket got into the hands of a samurai in southern Japan, a craze for firearms crossed the entire country. And suddenly uh, acquiring enough muskets and drilling your troops in the use of matchlock muskets became one of the most defining elements of samurai warfare yeah it changed how warfare was fought i think yes. i read a, i read an article about it how when when the portuguese were introducing these these arquebuses yes um the, the first guns to japan uh there was like a like a feudal lord and he bought up a whole bunch and tried to replicate them but they couldn't replicate them because they didn't have like threaded screws because that wasn't in their technological repertoire at the time yes and then later on they got it and then guns became mass produced but then they yes. were later outlawed yes they were so uh, guns uh, so after they they originally came in um, a lot of Japanese warlords uh, repurposed their swordsmiths and armorers to make firearms instead of mostly making swords and spears and so forth the Shimazu clan was the first to adopt firearms en masse but uh, firearms were then sort of made famous by uh, warrior monks on on one hand, and on the other hand by Oda Nobunaga, the most successful and volatile and I don't know about kind of kind of kind controversial, of very controversial. Yes, and like slow. It's Oda Nobunaga. Two two words. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Um, and firearms were later outlawed, but that came. That, that was really a, a creation of peacetime, and the decision to outlaw firearms was... Uh, it's sometimes portrayed as a, a decision made about honor or tradition, where samurai said, well, we can't have any more firearms because these are dishonorable weapons, and instead we're going to fight with swords, which are much more... On and it, it wasn't this really This is a bad. power thing. This is like, we don't want people to have access to weapons that they can use to kill us. Yes, exactly. And... So not only uh, not only arquebuses at that point, but also many other close combat weapons were uh, collected. For example, uh, a lot of naginata, a lot of glaives were at that point uh, collected up and then cut down. So um, there's a weapon called a nagamaki, which was actually not very common in the Warring States period. Um, and a lot of the nagamaki that survive... Uh, a nagamaki looks like uh, a sword with a really long handle. Many of them were actually naginata, which were cut down when they were stored and put away during peacetime. So for the listeners who, are, who, who don't know what a naginata is, it's like imagine a long spear with like a wakizashi short sword blade at the end of it. Yes, exactly. It's very scary. I, I actually used to be a kendo practitioner. Oh, cool. And like I sparred with somebody who was a naginata practitioner. And I got my ass kicked. Yeah, the, the Naginata <laughs> is the weapon that makes me feel the safest. When I have a Naginata, there aren't a lot of weapons where if you put it in my hands, I feel like, okay, I might survive this. But the Naginata is the one that makes me feel the most like, I'm going to get out of this alive. Well, I mean, uh, with the spear too, like in, in Europe, they had the pike. And right. with pike formations, it like protected soldiers against cavalry as long as they kept their cool. Yes. Like spears were so important. And even in RPGs, like even crunchier ones like D&D, the spear lets you stay away from the enemy. Exactly. And fully 50% of the casualties on a Japanese Warring States era battlefield were from spear wounds. Yeah. 
I mean, that that would you say that's the most common weapon that they used? Yes, it infantry. Is, yes, it is definitely the the most common infantry weapon. It was also a really popular cavalry weapon. But as the Warring States period progressed and arquebuses became more common, samurai stopped riding horses into battle because it was too risky to ride against uh, a musket, uh, a giant uh, target. Yeah. Ride a giant target against a wall of. Yes. Ranged weapons? Yes. And there was a there was a famous battle where the Takeda clan uh, cavalry charged the uh, Oda clan uh, arquebusiers, and the Oda clan won in spite of the fact that the Takeda clan cl- cavalry were the some of the best cavalry in Japan and were drilled even at fighting against musketeers. What I think is interesting about the Sengoku period and using it to kind of frame an RPG is that it was also a period where foreigners were allowed into Japan. Yes. Because following the Sengoku into the into the Edo period, the Tokugawa shogunate, foreigners were actually barred from Japan until Commodore Matthew Perry and the Black Flags came uh, yeah. and opened forcefully opened up Japan. Exactly. Yeah. So uh, so in Japan at this time we have uh, we have so of course there are a lot of people from China and Korea who are coming and uh, trading or raiding or fishing on the shores. So there's this constant, uh, constant uh, nautical interplay between those three countries, and also with the the Ryukyu Islands and Okinawa and so forth. So, and, and there's also like the complex sort of dynamic between like who are and I'm air quoting Japanese and the Ainu. Yes, so that's very complicated and still persists to this day. Yes, and the the relationship between the the Yamato Japanese and the Ainu is tragic and sad, and uh, uh, at times sort of over- overwhelming to read and think about. And I have a I have a book called The Conquest of Ainu Lands that's sitting in my hotel room right now, and I've been I've been reading it, and it's an emotional process because the the Ainu culture has been exterminated so systematically that most of the people who have Ainu DNA, Ainu... They don't uh, identify as Ainu out yes, of fear. Yes, exactly, yes. Yeah, I I think that's one of the most tragic things about contemporary Japan. Yes. Is the treatment of the Ainu. I, um, I mean, Ainu women had these, traditionally, would have had these beautiful facial tattoos and tattoos on their forearms. Yes, they were amazing. Beautiful. They, it looked like they would outline their lips in tattoos, and they have these beautiful spiral bands that went around their forearms. But they don't do that anymore because it's an identifier. It's a signifier of your Ainu heritage. Yes, exactly. And it's so highly stigmatized that all of these patterns, which were uh, this embroidery and these textiles, which are breathtaking, you just don't see them anymore outside of a lot of Ainu villages, which are essentially theme parks nowadays. Yeah. And we're actually uh, going to do an Ainu episode of Asians Represent with a Japanese archaeologist named Emma Yasui. That is awesome. Yeah. I'm so here for that. Yeah. Emma, Emma and I both uh, have graduate degrees in Jomon archaeology and worked in northern Japan in Hokkaido. You're so cool. I, I unfortunately didn't get to go to Hokkaido because all the material was here. But that's uh, where, that's where my expertise in Japan comes from. That is so cool. But but I think that's a good segue into like what one of the issues is with Thousand Arrows. One of the perceived issues is with Thousand Arrows. Like I'm here as somebody who is on paper an expert at Japan, but I am Chinese. Yes. And you here on paper are an expert in Japan. And people don't even think you're Asian. Yeah. Which is <laughs> well, well, my name is Mendez, which is Spanish because I'm Filipino. And 
Colonialism. I, yes, colonialism. And I am Asian. I'm also Hispanic. Uh, not all Filipinos identify as Hispanic, but I consider myself to be Hispanic because the Philippines speaks Spanish among yes. other many other languages. And even the dominant language uh, known as Tagalog or formerly Filipino, but I... Everyone just calls it Tagalog. I, I think it's just I call like, it Tagalog. Yeah, I think it's just like government documents that say Filipino. But yeah, uh, Tagalog is full of Spanish vocabulary and Spanish influence. So given the situation with colonialism and given the way that Spanish has affected the language, I identify as Hispanic, but not Latino. It's kind of like how Brazilians are Latino, but not Hispanic. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So... One, I think one of the issues that, I think one of the things about Thousand Arrows that people are taking issue with is that you are not Japanese. Yes, that is correct. I am not Japanese. And I think the fact that people have that impulse to question Thousand Arrows' legitimacy because no Japanese people have been ostensibly involved as far as the Kickstarter page goes. But your artist. Uh, except the artist and the other artists that we're looking at. And and the people you're consulting. Yes, and the people we're consulting <laughs> because we are bringing in Japanese gamers in Japan as cultural consultants to check this over. And I have a background in uh, Japanese history and I have a master's degree in Eastern classics focusing on great books of Japan, China, and India. And I've been practicing. The water margin. Yes. That's an RPG I want to do. Yes, a water margin RPG do you wanna, would be do you wanna, amazing. You want to do something? Yeah, sure. 100%. I'd love, yeah, I'd it's, love it's to. It's been said. Yes. Awesome. <laughs> <laughs> the diet. But, anyways. Cast. Yeah, water margin Eastern RPG, classics, Condor Heroes. But, yeah, sorry. Also, you know, you, Eastern classics, um, martial arts. Yes, I have been practicing Japanese martial arts for about 12 years now. Uh, I got my second degree black belt recently. Respect. Yeah, thank you. Um, but at the same time, I understand that some people have been looking over the Kickstarter page and they see James Mendez Hodes, and there's no picture of me, but in pictures I often don't look that Asian. Um, and my name does not look like it's Japanese, or if you're not super familiar with Filipinos, might not even look like it's Asian at all. And I list a bunch of academic credentials, and I list the fact that I have a black belt, which is, I think, a lot a thing that a lot of well-meaning but misguided white people often do when they talk about their own credentials in, yes uh, i think Japanese i think things. the martial arts is is almost tertiary to it for me whereas yeah. your academic credentials are are what are what really yes mean make it okay thank you and the the academic credentials are are really what drove a lot of thousand arrows's design uh, especially the uh, the time i spent studying the tale of the heka and the tale of genji and the pillow book um which all, which all were written much, much earlier than Thousand Arrows, but which were highly influential in determining uh, the Japanese literary viewpoint on Japanese history, yeah. which is what we want to focus on, rather than Japanese history digested and presented for a Western gaze, which is usually what we get in America and the English-speaking world. A lot of the samurai media that we see comes from the Edo period and comes from the period of peacetime. That's the period after the Sengoku. Yes, and the era of peacetime was is sometimes known as the era of the sword. Uh, this was when katana became really popular and people started having sword duels. Uh, in On a traditional Japanese battlefield, a sword was something that you pulled out when 
everything else had gone to hell. Your spear was broken. Your musket was out of ammo. You didn't have any arrows left. And your horse was dead. And your horse was dead. And, well, I guess, guess we're down to swords. Yep. So, um, I mean, the sword would be the last thing I would want to use if I had a gun, bow, and spear. Exactly. <laughs> yes, the, the katana is the second best weapon for everything. Um, <laughs> yeah. all, all the people who, like, really love the zombie apocalypse are going to be like, <laughs> James Meadows Hodes hates the katana. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes I, am, I am well known as a, uh, I'm going on record as a katana hater. <laughs> yes. Well, we, we, both, we both profess our love for the spear. Exactly. Spears, glaives, that's... That, that's what Pole I'm arms. Exactly. Yes. Um, uh, so I think it's I think it's a really good impulse that people have to question the legitimacy of Thousand Arrows based on the fact that there don't seem to be any Japanese names on the writing team. And worrying whether Thousand Arrows might be appropriative or might be disrespectful or exploitative is a great thing to worry about. And I think that impulse comes from a really good place, and I want to respect that and respect the criticism that's been coming our way. Um, so I've heard some criticism from the internet based on based on those elements, and then there's another wave of criticism which has to do with one of Thousand Arrows' stretch goals, which is highly unlikely to hit because it's 900 backers and we're somewhere around 300. But if we hit 900 backers, then we're going to release a supplement or campaign for Thousand Arrows called Dragon King's Gambit. And Dragon King's Gambit is set in Korea in 1592, just after a gigantic samurai invasion force has landed on Korea's shores in order to try and conquer Korea on the way to conquering China and the Philippines and the rest of Asia. Based on history. Yes. Um, So this is called the Imjin War. And it involves uh, Japan as an invading force uh, trying to conquer Korea. Uh, It involved Korea, of course, in uh, the Joseon period, which was a period of martial decline Mm -hmm. when Korea had mostly set aside martial arts and military pursuits as things that anyone in power cared about in favor of Confucian classics and art and treachery and backbiting and politics and nepotism and corruption. You know, combat in behind the scenes. Yes, exactly. Um, and China, which technically owned Korea at this point, because Joseon Korea was uh, Joseon Korea was a vassal state of China, um, also got involved. Although the Ming Dynasty at that point was in decline and was dealing with many rebellions and revolts and so forth, so they weren't able to commit the resources that Korea needed to fight back against Japan. And Japan. Uh, started out the war by steamrolling Korea, mostly because the Korean Navy was mismanaged, even though it was so much better than the Japanese Navy. The Japanese sailed right past it because some people should probably never have gotten jobs as admirals, but they were (laughs) well-placed at court, nepotism. But uh, the Japanese landed their troops, and they were much better drilled and much more experienced, and especially they had much more access to and training with the musket. So... The Japanese are, of course, famed and stereotyped for their skill with swords and so forth, but it was really Japanese musketry that made the difference in the invasion of Korea. I think people also like that romantic view of the the, the samurai and the sword. And, and at times it feels like, 
I don't know if you would agree with this, but at times it feels like primitivistic, where they don't want the samurai to be good with something advanced like the archivist. Exactly. I think that the image of an Asian using advanced technology as a weapon... Yeah, is we inher- don't like that. Yeah, it's inherently threatening in the West, and it brings me back to the 1990s and this fear that, quote-unquote, Japan was going to take over the world. Yep. So... Yeah, in the 90s before the banks failed, there was this sort of new articulation of the yellow peril uh, where everyone was everyone thought that Japan's money and technology and corporations were going to rule the world in another five years. And I think that it was in many ways a, a new, modern, maybe more sanitized version of the, the fear of Chinese immigrants and Filipino immigrants and right. – Everyone, all all the way back to the Mongols that the West has has always nurtured. Always, oh, there's always this fear of 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 a sort of monolithic Asia. Yeah, and and so like, okay, so you you have this stretch goal, and you're going to co- cover an historical period. Yes, where J- Japan attempted to invade Korea. Yes, and uh, so we're we're intending to cover this historical period. I've done couple of playtests of the Korean War scenario in, in different in different places and in with different form factors. But uh, some of the complaints that I or concerns that I've gotten from the internet stem from the relationship of the Imjin War and the relationship of uh, Japanese and Korean uh, history from the early modern period to the current tensions between Japan and Korea. That, but that's completely unfounded. Well, I, I, you're trying to do so. You're, you're, you're covering something historical. You're not making anything. You're not trying to take a side in contemporary political disputes. No. And, and like what, ha- like, I mean, with, with war games, and if you're doing anything historical, like we already know the outcome. Yes. And what you're doing as a player is participating in the drama of it or or making decisions that might ultimately affect your narrative but won't affect the national narrative. Yes. I think it is highly unlikely that Thousand Arrows will be successful enough to be translated into Japanese, Chinese, Korean, and Mongolian. And I, I mean, like, Power Play Apocalypse is not popular in China. No, it's Do you know what the most not. popular like, system in China is right now? In China? Is it Call of Cthulhu? No, it's Fate. Really? Yeah, I, I so I was at Gen Con. Oh. And our our friend Jason Pitt, right, uh, introduced me to a man named David Du and he's he's a publisher in China. Oh, right. I met him too. Yeah. Jason introduced me too. Yeah. And he had this suitcase full of RPGs. And we started talking and he was talking about you know what was popular in China and he's trying to do his best to make RPGs popular in China. And right now they love Fate. That's so cool. Yeah, out of all the systems, they love Fate. Wow. And like D&D and Pathfinder are getting popular there. Wow. But nobody's playing Powered by the Apocalypse games there. Yeah, and in, in Japan, I know that Call of Cthulhu is the most popular RPG, although there are several uh, RPGs that come from Japan. And then I'm not really sure of the situation in Korea. I know Night Witches is starting to take off, which Oh, is really? pretty awesome. Huh. Yeah. intended take off. Yeah. Uh, shout out to Jason Morningstar. Yeah. Um... But, do you think? Do you think the popularity of sorry, just a side thought? Do you think yeah. the popularity of Call of Cthulhu in Japan relates to the fascination with the West and Americana? Yeah, that's a that's a good question. You know, I, I'm not 
I'm not sure. Um, I my understanding of Lovecraft seems so so basic and so primitive compared to so many. So oh, many same other same gamers, here. All, all of the but, people that we know, mm-hmm. it's like I'm I'm not quite on that scale of. I, I just I don't like H.P. Lovecraft as a person. Yeah, it's it's hard I think as a person of color to get past a lot of the barriers about H, about H.P. Lovecraft, and I want to try and push through them because I want context for a lot of the great anti-racist takes on H.P. Lovecraft. You that mean like Harlem Unbound? Harlem Unbound, <laughs> uh, a Ballad of Black Tom, uh, Lovecraft Country. Yeah, I yeah. want to. I'm interested in all of those things, so I want a, a background in Lovecraft to get to those. But it's going to be a slog. Oh yeah. Um, and but but anyways, let's get back to this. Yes. This, this so, issue people are taking with this stretch goal. Yes. So, and, and again, I, I want to respect the fact that people care about East Asian politics and care about... So there's there's a lot of tension in the news right now. The, the Japanese prime minister... I, I'm not going to go into the political details no, because it, they that's are... that's not related to your game. Yes, they are, they are... If you're interested in that stuff, there are much better news sources you can get information from Reuters and the Associated Press about the, the nationalist rhetoric and the current tensions between Japan and Korea. And I'm not going to get too deeply into those. Um, I, I think it's almost flattering that <laughs> um, uh, folks are worried that Thousand Arrows is going to contribute to those. Um, but... So... With regard to the with regard to the engine war scenario, the reason that I decided to that I decided I wanted to work on an engine war variant of Thousand Arrows uh, was for a number of reasons. First of all, it highlights the fact that Japan and uh, Warring States era Japan was associated with. Oh, sorry. It highlights the fact that Warring States era Japan was not landlocked and was not a myopic place that only saw uh, its own people. And very often, portrayals of East Asian culture portray these cultures that can't see beyond themselves, where they don't know what's going on with other countries, and they're uh, self-obsessed, and, and that becomes their downfall, because, oh, we're too obsessed with swords, and then, oh, here comes some people. Well, that, that, and that comes back to that popular stereotype of historic Japan. Exactly. The Edo period samurai. Right, exactly. And in the Edo period, it was locked down, and there weren't a lot of foreigners. But earlier than that, yeah, Japan was... Uh, involved with Korea and Toyotomi Hideyoshi, the the man who unified Japan, yep. um, he wanted to invade Korea because Korea um, Korea's culture was long an influence on Japan, and Japan admired Korea's take on Confucianism and Buddhism and all of these ideas that Japan was also interested in but didn't focus on. Um, so. Japan had been interacting with Korea for a really long time through piracy and trade and culture. You could say even in prehistory too with the Yamato people. Yes, exactly. And Japan's uh, Japan's mythology uh, in its in its earliest stages even talks about invasions of Korea. Uh, the Empress Jingu um, was who was a, a legendary semi mythical empress who might have existed, but certainly not in any form that. Uh, history is recorded um, was said to have invaded Korea uh, in her reign, which was in some mythical period somewhere in the 100s or 200s. It's no one knows for sure. Right. But uh, invading Korea is part of Japan's legendary, going back to 
uh, prehistory, and I understand like the continuity between those legends and the Imjin War and Imperial Japan in the 20th century. Um, and I really wanted to have a scenario which brought in other kinds of Asians, where you would see Mongolians, Manchurians, Chinese, and Koreans. Uh, I mean, there's a complicated history between all of them yes, in the region. Yes, I even mean, the the Ryukyu Islands were involved yeah. in this, and Toyotomi Hideyoshi even sent a letter to the Philippines uh, demanding tribute, um, saying, you, you'd better send us some, some cash and some treasure or we're going to invade you next. Uh, but it wasn't addressed to a Filipino. It was addressed to the governor general who'd come from Spain because Spain was just finishing up conquering the Philippines. Yes. And fun fact, then in... Uh, so the Imjin War ended in 1598 uh, uh, while Spain was consolidating its hold over uh, over the Philippines. And then a couple of years later, in 1600, two brothers, a soldier and a priest, arrived from Spain as conquistadors, essentially, and their families diverged and mixed with the locals and then came back together. And uh, their surname was Mendez, and they were my ancestors. Damn. Well, okay, so I've, I've got uh, another historical link for, for me to share them with oh, you. Oh, yes. So, Three Kingdoms period, China. Sweet. One of the most, like, epic periods and the bloodiest period in China's history. Yes. People know about it from Dynasty Warriors. Dynasty Warriors, Red Cliff, all that. So, my family traces its ancestry back to Guan Yu. What? Yeah, supposedly. What? Where's your beard, though? Uh, uh, barely. I'm trying. This it. is my Movember. All right. Okay. I'm like, we're like, cool. we're like three days in. This all is right. me. That's cool. I, I can't grow that. <laughs> but I'm, my Chinese name is Guan Ziping. I'm wow. actually named after Guan Yu's son. Oh, who got executed? But I'm named wow. after Guan Yu's son, who is in Dynasty Warriors. Wow, that's so cool. It's pretty cool, right? Yeah. Have you seen Red Cliff? Yeah, it's a dope movie. Donnie yeah. Yen. Yeah, yeah, I, I love that movie. No, wait, it's not Donnie Yen. He he played. That's the last blade blade master. Oh, okay. Red Cliff is John Woo's movie. Right, John Woo, and uh, yeah, and the guy who played uh, the guy who played Guan Yu is Bedorjin Basanjab. Yeah, who's a, a Mongolian actor who's really popular in in China powerful beard very powerful majestic beard yeah but like so i want to i want to go to i want to ask you a question which i think you'll see my rationale behind it when i ask you the question yes so 1937 japan invades china yes some might say that's one of the starts of the second world war yeah let's say i wrote an rpg about being chinese people resisting japanese occupation yes do you think anybody would take offense to that it's hard to say um no, what am I talking about? Of course people would take offense to that. Yes, someone on the internet would definitely 100%. manage you, to take so offense do you think, to that. Do you think an Asian person would take offense to it? I don't think so. Not, I, I think it's, I don't know. I'm, I'm going on anecdotal evidence because what my answer to this is based on my personal interactions with other Asians in gaming. Yeah. And my, my reaction to that situation, uh, if, if, you, if you popped up in one of the secret Asian Facebook groups that we're on, and you told me that you were working on that game. Um, and actually, even if you weren't Chinese, let's say you were you're Korean or Mongolian yeah. or something like that, even Indian, whatever. Um, if you told me that you were an Asian working on an Asian game about a real Asian I got your back. War, I got your back. Yeah, I'd be like, awesome. This is great. I, I hope you do a good job. Uh, I know some things about it are probably going to be wrong or disrespectful, but I know that like you have what it takes to make a and good game. And you'll involve the right people. Yes. And that's what you're doing. Yes. That's and what you're doing. But here's, here's the thing. When you, when we fade, I always believe that like, look, we could always sit back and wait. Like you could just, you could just wait 
for a Japanese person to write an RPG about Japan. But we don't know when that's going to happen. We don't. We don't know. But And while we sit back and wait, we have to... We only have the opportunity to consume games about Japan written by white people. Yes. And I don't... Um, so we can we could wait and be underrepresented, or we can create... Yes. And make a space for ourselves, and make a space for other creators... Yes. ...to go. So, oh, other Asian creators who might be of, you know, Japanese ancestry see your game yes and they're like whoa this asian guy wrote a game about japan that's super that's hella inspiring yes let me go write one too yes and i think that um so from a from a very very personal kind of selfish standpoint i think that being being asian but not japanese and working on a japanese game is sort of a it's an emotionally comforting design space because i am working on a i'm working on a game that's about asia and about asian themes and that's important to me but it also doesn't shine a light specifically on my own heritage and doesn't shine a light specifically on my own real-world racial identity. And that's a problem that Asians sometimes have at the gaming table where we're trying to sit there and game and we want to have the choice to involve our own heritage and our own history and our own identity. Mm-hmm. But we feel like there's a spotlight shining on us um, that's being shown by, I don't know, the Western gaze or something like that. Yeah. That we're forced to think about our identity all the time, and we're, we end up being trapped in it, so that we can, uh, as designers, then we can only create things about our own ancestry. Yeah. Have you ever have you ever um, been called like a child of two worlds? Have you ever uh, heard that? I've, I've definitely heard that. I, I kind of. I, I, that's how I feel. Yeah. Right? I, I. You know. I, I was. We were both born in North America. Yes. You were born in the United States. I was born in Canada. Our our families came from Asia. Yes. Um. But, you know, I grew up not speaking Chinese. Yes. And so I, so when I traveled and lived in China for work, I never felt like I belonged there, even though I looked like I belonged. Mm. When I come to Canada, when I'm in Canada, I still don't feel like I belong because I don't look white. Right. And when I, I was also not raised uh, speaking Tagalog, my mom speaks Tagalog and Spanish and French and a bunch of other things. But her grandfather told her that she should always, if whenever she was filling out a census form, she should always check white. And she and, should and always. And those American census forms are flawed already. They're a mess. They're super flawed. They're a nightmare. Um, so my mom was raised thinking that uh, European culture was just the coolest thing, and she's a huge Francophile and knows all of this great stuff about European manners and culture and language and so forth, and. I didn't get to hear that much about a lot of the elements of Filipino culture that other Filipinos I meet in the United States uh, are focused on. And when I when I go to the Philippines, uh, I've been once when I was ten, and everyone was super excited that I had light skin, and that was awkward. And yeah, my brother looks half Asian, so when he went to China, people oh, would take photos with him. Yeah, it's 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 uncomfortable. Yeah, um, and. Uh, if you if you go around a big city in the Philippines, the signs are in English. There just isn't that much stuff in Tagalog. So uh, American culture and language are prized there, even though America invaded and oppressed the Philippines in 1899 and then colonized the Philippines for many, many years. Now the specter of colonialism is still over the Philippines. And in 1946, after the... 
after Japan, which had conquered the Philippines and occupied it for three for a few years during the end of World War II, after Japan surrendered, Americans were hailed as liberators. Yep. And so now they're and and that situation, which has a lot of tragic and, and not to mention problematic, doesn't even be given, begin to cover it. Yep. Uh, elements that situation led to my family ending up in the United States. And if the United States hadn't been a colonial power in the Philippines, my family probably would have settled in Tokyo, of all places. My family left China because of the Cultural Revolution. What was going on inside of our yes. country? Yes, yeah. Right? So so this, this history of colonialism and complexity is, is literally in our blood. And then... The weird thing about being Asian American is that you come here, and uh, we were just talking about this earlier, you come here and you have all this baggage and history from your parents. I remember my parents, uh, my mom telling me about the Japanese chasing my... my, Oh, same here. Yeah. My grandparents, like, my my parents were like, oh, your grandparents hate Japanese people. Right. Because of what happened in World War II. And when I I went to the Philippines, my mom took me to this this prison, and she said, that's, see that cell? That's where the Japanese wanted to throw uh, your family, and the the waves were going to come in, and when the tide rose, they would have drowned. So we had, I had all of these horror stories about Japanese people conquering the Philippines that I grew up with. But when we come to the United States as Asian Americans, immediately we find that one another, that the other Asians, regardless of their Asian ancestry, are our closest allies in the fight against white supremacy. Yep. And the fact that Indian culture isn't a lot like Filipino culture or the fact that Japanese people conquered the Philippines, now that we're in the United States, we are... We are one community. Yes, we have to be because we're forced together by external pressures and racism. And Dragon King's Gambit, my engine war scenario, is actually low-key about that. Because the specific plot of Dragon King's Gambit is that in late 1592, after Japan has conquered almost all of Korea and China is on its way to save Korea but too slowly, there's a sea monster attack. And Ao Guang, the Dragon yeah, King yeah, of yeah. the East Sea in Chinese, in Chinese and Japanese mythology. And Korean mythology. He's super cool. He's, he's awesome. Uh, attacks Korea with an army of sea monsters. And the Japanese, Chinese, and Korean forces are forced to put aside their war and postpone it and work together, even though they don't like or trust each other, to fight against this uh, sea monster invasion. And uh, I've also gotten some complaints that... Uh, having a having a sea monster from East Asian mythology is uh, not realistic, and that it would have been better to have an entirely historical game. But I actually don't really like that idea because I am a, a scholar of East Asian religion as well as of war and, and other those stuff. things felt very real to people. Yes, the Aoguang was some something that people actually believed in and cared about, and Aoguang shows up as an antagonist in lots and lots of Chinese literature, like the Journey to the West uh-huh. uh, and the Function Yang Yi, and he's really, really important to East Asian thought, and he and other religious figures and mythological figures from Chinese legend and literature and, and the legend and literature of other uh, countries in that area, those are all really, really These important. All, and they are all real to the people experiencing them. Yes, exactly. So bringing in the Dragon King has a number of effects that I like on the war. First of all, it makes people 
band together and fight a common enemy. And uh, that is, yeah, like I said, a low-key metaphor for the way that Asian Americans have to work together to fight the the dragon of white supremacy. Um, it means that people can shoot at monsters instead of just shooting at humans all the time, which gives people it's sort nice. of... Yeah, it's a sort of an emotional break. Um it's it's fun and interesting because supernatural stuff is cool. Yep. It highlights East Asian religion, and it also means that um, because this happens in late 1592 and the course of the war changes, and because the player characters are given the reins of the war and they become the, the leading figures of this war, um, fighting back against the Dragon King, but also having to beware of each other and be wary of their own obligations to... Um, their to their crowns and uh, uh, because they have to think about all of those things they have the opportunity to do better than many of the, the real people involved in the war uh, in 1592 in the real world because there were a lot of cruel and vicious and wicked people who were involved in that war just like there are in any war yep. and war is really really bad and it's tragic and a lot of Thousand Arrows uh, both thematically and systematically, like mechanically in the game, is about the tragedy of war. And by giving players that agency in Korea in 1592 as Japanese, Chinese, Koreans, Mongolians, uh, they have the chance to, to do better, and they have the chance to change the course of the war so that in December 1592, many atrocities had already been committed, but... Uh, the the colonial the period of uh, Japanese domination of Korea had not really uh, gotten into high gear yet so players have an opportunity to do better and the one thing that I'm I'm really conflicted about and I'm not really sure what to do um, is whether or not to make the player characters real historical figures mm. in the playtest that I did uh, a few years ago at Dreamation, we had uh, a game of Dragon King's Gambit, which was 15 players, uh, three tables, three GMs, three sessions. It was this giant epic campaign yeah. that went over the course of the whole convention. And in that game, uh, the Japanese, Chinese, and Korean characters were almost all uh, real historical figures involved in the Imjin War. Uh, historical figures who were alive at that time uh, in related areas but not specifically involved in the war, mythological or folkloric figures who were related to those regions, and then a few original characters I made up to fill the roles of, for example, peasants um, who weren't re well represented in right. the records of the time so that I could get some class representation as well. Well, it, I think that if you, if you want people to impact... The, the ultimate um, the the events of that of the war then maybe it would be interesting to have historical characters yes but if you want people to tell human stories and, and this is my philosophy with war games yes if you want people to tell human stories that might not have an effect on the ultimate outcome of the war but of their own lives let them create their own characters hmm that that's really compelling, and based on our experience in in Ross Rifles yesterday, when yeah, you were exactly. running when you were running Ross Rifles for a table of, I think it was mostly Asians. It was, it was the first time I played a, I've done a play test with more people of color than white people. Yeah, yeah, and that was so much fun. And yeah, you you had us make original characters, which was really really cool. 
Um, and most of the characters that you made were not char- were not white characters, which is yes. great. Yes, we made characters from all over the world, from like all kinds of both realistic and ridiculous places. And it, and was, it was still World War One. Yeah, and it was great um, because the because the system was there for us, and the system supported all all the things that we were doing. And and I think that's what you're that's what Thousand Arrows in general is doing. Yes, in in general, uh, Thousand Arrows is letting people create their own uh, their own figures to uh, to change the course of Japanese history. And it's really really easy if you want to make Oda Nobunaga as your first oh, level you starter it. character. It's real easy. Yeah, but if you want to make your own character and you don't want to be Oda Nobunaga because of reasons, yeah, it'll just just look them up yeah. yeah so so you have options and honestly even if i told people make make fictional characters don't play as real people because um because we're afraid of offending someone with that first of all i can't actually stop someone from making a historical character in this game no of course not and second of all when when game designers say we're not responsible to real people because this is fantasy and it just has signifiers that point to real cultures. Or even when they say, oh, well, this is complete fantasy and it has nothing to do with the real world and yet it has a bunch of signifiers that point to the real world. I don't think that that gets them out of the, uh, out of the grip of accountability. I think that saying this is fiction, this is fantasy... Um, so, of course, it can't hurt real people and real people don't matter in, reg- with, in relation to this. I think, that, I think that that excuse does not fly. And I think that since everything we make has signifiers that point towards real world culture, you have to think about everything in terms of how it affects real people. And even, even though a lot, of, a lot of the complaints about the Imjin War scenario might sound really far-fetched when I describe them to you. I still want to design the game in a way that feels responsible to real people. And I want to design the game in a way that will be productive and good for real people at the table. And right now, I'm mostly focusing on Americans and Asian Americans. And I'm thinking about Imjin War in with regard to how Korean Americans and Japanese Americans and Chinese Americans and Filipino Americans, et cetera, et cetera, yeah. are going to react to it at the table. Um, and I hope that this game explodes and becomes infinitely popular and people in Japan, China, and Korea want to play it. Um, I hope so, too. Yeah, but I think that the stakes are different with Asian America and Asia, as we see in things like the Ghost in the Shell controversy. Yes, so, and I think that's something that, you know, white people kind of have a hard time understanding. Yes. And that's why you're facing a lot of this criticism from white people because they don't understand the, these dynamics. Yes. But that's also why it's important to have these conversations. Yes. And, you know, to have people hear, you know, your story. Yes. Because you can't put all of that in the Kickstarter. No, it's, because, it's a lot. Because then it would be a Kickstarter about you and not your game. Yes. So I have, I have some blog posts that are going to get linked off the Kickstarter page and they're going to talk about a lot of these issues. Um, and they're going to go into elaborate, wordy depth and detail. Yeah. Um, and that's you so, can get there, but um, at the same time, like uh, there are going to be there are white people listening to this right now who are probably feeling like who came out to have a good time and are feeling a little attacked right now because of the stuff that we're talking about. But I think that I think that this period of misunderstanding or partial understanding, this phase uh, where you you're starting to get 
the issues, but you might not get them on with the same kind of depth and subtlety that you and I do because we're immersed in the Asian American and gaming we, community. And we, and we lived it. Yeah. Um, you, you don't have that lived experience, um, so you're struggling. You're, you're doing your best, and, and that's good. It's good, but it, it's also better to have a dialogue yes. rather than attack you yes. and have you find out later. Yes. Especially on channels where, where you participate. Yes, and... Because uh, we live in a culture where we'd rather react than converse. Yes. And, uh, again, like, most of the people who have, who have come to me with concerns, who have brought up this subject with me, have done so in a really respectful and thoughtful and productive way. And I don't know whether I'm being overly charitable, because a lot of other people who have seen some of the same dialogue or who were who were there in this channel that I'm not in and actually watched the argument happen um, have come up and apologized to me. That's good. Um, yeah, which, yeah. Now go back that damn Kickstarter. <laughs> yes, please back the Kickstarter. <laughs> if if only to to leave if only to leave angry comments so that I can engage with them myself, argue with me instead of with other people um, who don't have my background and who don't know how to respond to you when you say, "Well, this guy isn't Japanese, so what the hell is he doing?" Yeah, yeah. Please, please come yell at me in, instead of yelling at your friends. So if people want, to, I'm not going to say yell at you. So if if people <laughs> want to talk to you if people want to converse with you where can they find you on the internet so uh let's see i'm in a i'm in a few places on the internet so in the notes for this episode we're going to link my website which has my nascent blog which has like three posts on it i think all of them are about racism they're very good thank you <laughs> thank you so so what's your website what's the url it's jamesmendezhodes.com and where are you on twitter uh, i am at lula vampiro on twitter How do you um, that? lima uniform lima alpha Victor, Alpha, Mike, Papa, India, Romeo, Oscar on Twitter. Um, and that is my, that's my capoeira apolito. Um, in addition to doing Japanese martial arts, I also play capoeira. And uh, every capoeira player gets uh, an insulting nickname based on their idiosyncrasies. And mine is Lula, uh, which means squid, because I like grappling an unreasonable amount. Do, do you know what they used to call me when I did martial arts? What? They used to call me Daredevil. <laughs> because I'm blind, <laughs> so I, so I have back. So I did like Krav Maga for oh, a long wow. time, and I didn't train with glasses because my idea was that like, well, if I ever got in a fight, these are the first things that are gonna go. That is so. Yeah. I learned how to fight blind. <laughs> I uh, I have a, a Chinese American friend who was in exactly that situation. He a gang attacked him. They knocked off his glasses, and he actually scared them off. Um, fighting blind against them. So yeah, yep. One, one day. Well, I hope never to do that. <laughs> but well, to, to end this, one of the things that I'm looking forward to with Asians represent and with like you know discussions like this and with games like Thousand Arrows is that we begin to build a community and a space where Asian creators want to create, where Asian consumers want to create products that they want to play. Yes, and if. I don't know if you're familiar with, like, are you really big on the Asian YouTube scene? Not not as much. Okay, so I'm super into it. Huh. So there was this whole, there was this, like, renaissance of Asian creation on YouTube. And it was almost like, like, Asian Hollywood. 
but on YouTube with like famous channels like Wong Fu Productions. Oh, okay. Like the Fung Bros. Right. People Aqua, like Aquafina. Aquafina, right. Anna Akana. Right? Anna Akana. Yeah. Dumbfounded. Um, David So. Um, Timothy Delaghetto. He was his rap love, name was Traffic. I love Timothy Delaghetto. He's awesome, right? No racial, no racial. Or like Kev Jumba, like Ryan Higa. Oh yeah, like all of these people. But they they were creating space for Asian creators on YouTube. And what I I think we should do is create a space for Asian creators in gaming. Yes, definitely. And and create spaces where people can come, like. Like cons are really white. Cons are so white. And so, were, but 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 we but we know that there are Asian gamers. Yeah, and you were talking about you were talking about Gen Con on on your episode zero. I remember yeah. and how white Gen Con is, and it is. And and a few weeks before that, I went to Origins, and Origins makes Gen Con look like look like Sesame Street. Origins is so <laughs> white and so male. <laughs> yeah. So like, we need to change things. Yes. And we're going to do that one game at a time. Yes. And the first game is going to be Thousand Arrows. Yes. Well, well, there, there have been Filipinos, <laughs> it, as I think your previous episodes mentioned. Yes. Toby Abad, yes. uh, who lives in Manila and is Filipino, made a, a game about samurai called A Single Moment. It's we're going to Agatha and I are going to play it. Oh, that's so cool. Yeah, it's going to be awesome. We're going to try to play every game, and we're eventually going to play Thousand Arrows. I am so looking forward to that. So if you want to stay in touch and you want to... Uh, I will put all of James's socials on the Asians Represent page at OneShotPodcast.com. But if you want to get in touch with us directly, the best and quickest way to get in touch with us is on Twitter at AZNSRepresent. And this is actually the first con episode of Asians Represent, so I hope you like it. I'm so honored. Thank you Wait, for being on it. No, no, I said the word honor. No, no, oh no, Damn people it, are gonna no. attack us. Damn it. <laughs> yeah, one thing I try to do in Thousand Arrows is never say the word honor. Because, which is, I think, unprecedented in a samurai game. Yes. Because when, whenever, whenever people do like Asian exotification, like quote unquote positive Asian stereotypes, it's always about how honorable we are. Yeah. And it's like, oh well, well, if we can't use honor, should I just say you're dishonorable? No, just don't no, use honor. Just don't, don't, don't say the word honor. Yeah. yeah looking at you, Ready Player One. James for joining me for this bonus episode of Asians Represent and thank you listener for tuning in Asians Represent is part of the One Shot Podcast Network if you head to oneshotpodcast.com you can listen to a variety of amazing podcasts like The Broadswords an all women actual play Dungeons and Dragons podcast focusing on role play, narrative and diversity at the gaming table and if you have any questions about uh, this episode's theme the games we discussed, or anything else related to Asians Represent, get in touch with us on Twitter at A-Z-N-S Represent or at A-Z-N-S Represent at OneShotPodcast.com. I'm Daniel Kwan, and you've just listened to a bonus episode of Asians Represent. Asians Represent.